0: The topic now is energy in Vienna. OPEC tentatively agreeing on an oil output cut. That was something on the agenda, but. We're still waiting to hear from non-OPEC members, such as Russia, before deciding what kind of volume in production reduction will actually take place. Here to tell us more from Vienna is Jason Schenker. He is the president of Prestige Economics and the chairman of the Futurist Institute. Jason, we've all been waiting for a press conference that apparently is not going
2: to happen. Yeah, that's right, Pim. I'm sitting right now in the press conference room in Vienna. Uh, there were a few hundred people here up until about 10 minutes ago when the story broke that there was not going to be a press conference. The room is mostly emptied out. Now it's maybe about only 100 people left. And, uh, you know, folks are a little bit concerned, but it looks like we'll have to wait for tomorrow to see what happens if OPEC and non OPEC members, specifically Russia, can come to an agreement on what happens with production cuts.
1: So, Jason, this actually uh, is highly unusual for them to cancel a press conference. Does it indicate to you that there's more disagreement than usual on how much to cut production or even if they should cut it all?
2: Well, I think what it really indicates is that the stakes are higher. And I think anyone, you know, we look at what's going on across markets today and what's been going on for the last two months, uh, you know, we see there's a lot of volatility, there's concern about. The U.S.-China trade war and what's going on, what does that mean for risk in 2019? It's been really important for industrial metals, which have been crushed all year. Oil prices have taken a big hit after the driving season. Um, equity markets highly volatile on this. And then, of course, there's still interest rate tightening, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, higher cost of capital. What's that going to do? There's a risk of a CapEx recession in business investment in the U.S. There's a risk of a Chinese manufacturing recession in 2019. These things are big risks on OPEC's plate, and, and I think that OPEC and non-OPEC members want to make sure they get it right because the risks and the stakes not be higher.
0: Jason, the Russian energy minister, Alexander Novak, he went from Vienna back to St. Petersburg to talk to President Vladimir Putin. He's now scheduled to return to Vienna on Friday. What do the Russians want?
2: Well, I think it's really, you know, th- there's concern about the market going into an oversupplied situation, what happened in late 2014 through the middle of 2016 oil inventories globally rose sharply and part of that was China, the biggest net importer in the world of crude oil, the biggest source of additional future marginal crude oil demand, was in a manufacturing recession. China's on an edge of a manufacturing recession right now. If it goes into one, and OPEC and non-OPEC members specifically, Russia and OPEC can't agree on how much to reduce, then the price of oil could get whacked really hard. And so I think there's, you know, potential to want to err on the side of more tightening rather than less. And that means, you know, there might need to be special approvals involved because they can't get this wrong because if they do, those inventories go up a lot more, oil prices could get hammered.
1: What's the price that they would like to see? I'm looking right now at crude on the NYMEX, uh, hitting that $50 a barrel target or almost uh, almost there, almost lowest levels in more than a year. What do they want?
2: Well, I think the, the most, you know, I, I, I would probably say $60 or above, but they don't explicitly target an oil price. What they try to target, what they have targeted for the last two years with the OPEC, non OPEC agreement, is the five year average inventory level. That inventory's built up massively above that through 2015, the early part of 2016. And they've run down. This year, we've been below globally that five-year average of oil inventory stocks. And so OPEC wants to keep it below that or at that five-year inventory average. That's what they're really trying to target because they know if they can keep it at that level, even if demand weakens, it will support prices. And while they might like $60 a barrel, what they're probably very worried about is, could you get to 40 again?
0: Jason, one of the things the Russians have said is that it is more challenging for them to cut oil output in the winter than other producers because of the cold weather. Does this mean that they're going to have to wait until after winter and after the Europeans use all of that Russian natural gas?
2: Well, I'd say there's a a couple things on this. And, you know, I don't think it I mean, they can structure when cuts happen, how cuts happen. You know, those are things that can be worked out. But I think as long as the members are, you know, kind of of a singular mind to rein in supply, that's going to be the thing. But I think no one country wants to bear the entire brunt of it. And I think that the members also want to see it kind of spread around. I think particularly Saudi Arabia wants to make sure that these are numbers that everybody's going to play with, and they're not the only country to pull back supply. And I think Russia wants to make sure that it, too, isn't the only one to reduce supply, because while everyone would like to benefit from potentially more supported or higher prices, not every, you know, no country wants to pay the full fare, right?
1: Right. Jason Schenker, thank you so much for being with us there uh, from Vienna, where you are observing the undertakings at OPEC's latest meeting. Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, also chairman of the Futurist Institute, normally based in Austin, uh, but over in Vienna.
0: Canadian authorities in Vancouver have arrested Huawei Technologies' chief financial officer at the request of the United States for alleged violations of Iran sanctions. Here to help us understand the situation is Wu Jin-ho. He is technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And also joining us is Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg. Michael McKee, let's just begin the Chief Financial Officer of Huawei Technologies is not an ordinary employee, is she?
3: (laughs) No, uh, she's not. Uh, She's the daughter of the founder, and this is also one of China's biggest companies, and it is one of the companies that China is relying on in the Made in China 2025 program to dominate the world's uh, leading technologies of the future. So this has enormous implications. It may have uh, been something completely separate from the president's overtures to Xi Jinping uh, down in Buenos Aires, but it was the same day. So, it uh, could possibly be a message from the president to the Chinese, uh, but it's definitely going to complicate the. Trade uh, efforts that the administration is making, you have to expect the Chinese may have some sort of retaliatory move ahead.
1: Just to be very clear, though, this is being prosecuted out of the Eastern District of New York. So this is a federal prosecutorial office that is somewhat removed from the president in the day-to-day terms. And Canada, Canada did cooperate here. Come on, in here, Wu Jin Ho. What do we know about the actual allegations? And then, can you talk about what the uh, programming and the the software and some of the some of the actual technology behind this is why it's such a security concern
4: sure so um, from a uh, from the allegations standpoint it's still fairly thin um, because the documents are sealed right now so we really don't know why she's being arrested in, in Canada all we do know is that she was arrested on December 1st and then she's being asked to uh, the US is asking her to be extradited in, back to the US uh, for some sort of charge Right now, the timing of it, uh, to uh, your point, is, is is a little bit rough, primarily because of the the trade agreements between Trump and, and Xi Jinping. So, um, I think there's a timing element to it, um, but from uh, from from uh, a trade perspective, still unclear, quite frankly. Right, um, in terms of. Um, you know, uh, Huawei and what Huawei provides. Huawei provides the actual network equipment that helps drive our um, uh, wireless networks. So if you look at uh, the Chinese uh, uh, wireless markets, some of the European wireless markets, they use a lot of the Huawei uh, equipment. Um, And if you think about how we have digital networks, a lot of the digital networks can, you can actually peer into the packets itself and see what's being said and then you know, an eavesdrop into the communication. So there is a security concern element, and that's one of the reasons why the U.S. government has banned Huawei equipment um, uh, for their use. And the other element of that is that Huawei is the second largest, first or second largest smartphone provider as well, and uh, that was also banned uh, into uh, or uh, discouraged from being sold in the U.S. So there there are security elements on both fronts, on the equipment side as well as on, on the smartphone side.
0: Now, Michael, the chief financial officer, as you were describing, of Huawei, Sabrina Meng, was arrested during a layover flight in Canada. The allegations have to do with an ongoing criminal investigation into Huawei, which started, I think it was back in the spring. What exactly do you believe the government, I mean, it has to do with dealings with Iran,
3: what is there any subtext here based on uh, the, the trade dispute? Well, the subtext would be that the U.S. is cracking down on China for uh, a lot of things. Uh, this is not directly related to trade with the U.S., but it is uh, an allegation that the, the Huawei helped evade U.S. sanctions on Iran. Uh, Huawei has a defense arguing that uh, the regulations are unclear and that um, they didn't necessarily violate uh, U.S. law. That'll have to be argued out. But uh, while it's not directly related to the trade dispute, it does complicate matters because uh, it is part of an effort, uh, along with, uh, you remember the ZTE case, uh, uh, the US to uh, crack down on these companies in China that it sees as threats. Now, it's not to say they did or didn't do something wrong. Uh, I'm I'm not the judge, but there are credible allegations they did something wrong, but it does seem to be uh, a coordinated effort on the part of the administration to go after companies Uh, deliberately because they are competitors to the U.S., they are a threat to the U.S., and if they're getting there by breaking the law, then they should be prosecuted.
1: Ujinho, come on in here, because one thing that I'm struck by is how isolated is Huawei, which is a huge company in China, one of the most important, if not the most important companies there. uh, How much business does it do with U.S. companies and U.S. suppliers?
4: Sure, so in in terms of uh, uh, an equipment perspective, uh, what we calculated was that uh, Huawei provides $5 billion, $5 billion with a B dollars of equipment in terms of network equipment from optical wireless infrastructure, so on and so forth. Right? That's different from ZTE. ZTE is still a fairly domestic Chinese market. The U.S. doesn't buy uh, Chinese equipment for the most part, so it's mostly um, Western Europe, LATAM, Australia, Japan, and, and South Korea. Um, but there are broader implications for the, uh, the suppliers. If we look at uh, what we published today, um, there, uh, Huawei is the number one optical equipment supplier. And uh, what we can see from the SPLC function on Bloomberg is that Lumentum uh, Neophotonics uh, generates 47% of their sales from, from Huawei. And there are a host of other uh, providers um, that provides 10% or, or, or more on sales. Now, we're not there yet. Right, the ZTE ban, um, you know, showed that it, it can cripple the, the a U.S. supplier ban can cripple a supplier. Yeah. But we're not there yet.
1: jin Ho, technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Mike McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg. Both of you, thank you so much. A lot to figure out, a lot unknown as of yet. So we will continue to dig into it uh, as new information arises.
0: Real estate, commercial real estate, multifamily real estate. We've got an expert, Gerald Gutterman. Jerry Gutterman is the senior principal partner and chief investment officer for Gutterman Partners. They are based in New York, and he joins us now. Jerry Gutterman, thank you very much for being with us. Let's begin right off the bat by when you see a day like today in the stock market and the bond market, what's your reaction?
5: Of course, I would rather the market be going up, but it doesn't really affect real estate as an investment on a daily basis because the real estate continues to work. The tenants continue to pay rent, and they're really not affected by this. We understand that 401ks can be affected, but the daily living of the average tenant is not affected.
1: But, Jerry, fair enough. Fair enough. Although some people would interpret what we're seeing, certainly in bond and stock markets, as a signal that growth is slowing substantially around the world, including the U.S. We're seeing inflation expectations dropping the most in more than a year today. I'm just wondering, how does that play into the housing market, given the fact that the last time we spoke, uh, you said that you foresee an implosion in high-end condos coming?
5: Yes, because I've seen this now uh, three different times. I saw it in 1987 to 1988, I saw it in 2006, 2007, and then 2014 to 2016, I've now been seeing it. And in 1987 to 1988, of course, the real estate market had the same exact things happen to it. It wasn't a matter of the stock market. And I realized that in 1987, we had a big problem. Uh, with the stock market, and we had that one-day crash. But on the other hand, the big problem and the big reason that the real estate market weakened was because of overbuilding, constantly, constantly overbuilding, because if you give a normal and usual builder a mortgage, he will build in the desert. And consequently, by 1987, 1988, the overbuilding and the overcapacity was such that we saw it coming, and the pricing for it at that point, because they were building so much, but they were building into a demand where the price of the product kept going up and up and up to where the return kept going down. The return went down to 5%, then below 5%. It reminds me of today. We had the same thing happen that we saw in 2006, 2007. We saw it happening in 2008. You know, we sold everything between 2006 and 2007, just like we sold everything between 1987 and 1988. All
1: right. Well, Jerry, we get it. It it makes sense what you're saying in the high end condo market. I'm wondering, does that sort of carry over to the rest of the housing market, especially in light of uh, sensibly rising rates, although now they're going back down?
5: You know, we specialize. We we really have not been doing new homes. We've been doing more conversions, that is, buying rental properties and converting them to condominium ownership, because when we do that, what we find is we can buy the product better, cheaper, and we can actually sell it significantly cheaper. And when you realize, when you finally realize that if you buy an existing rental property That tenant in possession is your partner if you're going to do a condominium conversion. That is, you're going to convert the condominium ownership. Well, what does your partner want? Your partner wants to buy it almost as cheaply as you did. And the answer is, we believe that every tenant in possession is a partner, and we give the tenants in possession a significant price reduction. How do we do that? We do that because we're able to take advantage of the market as it is now. Starting now, because it's already started several months ago, the prices have been dropping significantly in the areas where there has been extreme overbuilding. For instance, if I go to Florida and I pick a city like Sunny Isles Beach, which most people know, if you have a non-luxury apartment that is going condominium, I would tell you today that there's about 32 months of supply right now. That means it's going to take 32 months to sell what is normally sold in one year. If you go to the luxury market, it's 55 and a half months of supply. Can you imagine 55 and a half months? That's four and a half years of supply on an average sale per year basis well. The builders can't hold out. And what's the only thing they can do? They have to be able to sell and get out. The builders can't sell at steep discounts. It's not possible. And the reason is the banks who have made them the loans will not allow the builders to sell at a discounted price. The reason is because if the bank allows the builder to sell at a discounted price, then the auditors are going to come in and they're going to drop all of the value for their mortgages that they have by at least that amount, and they're going to take their collateral. The bank's collateral will only be worth a certain amount less if they drop the price 20%. Can you imagine the auditors coming in and dropping the collateral by 20% or 25% or 30%? And that's Gerald, what happens. Gerald, yes, le,
0: Jerry, let me let me ask you one, one question having to do with the non-professional or the non-experienced, the unexperienced real estate investor who put billions of dollars into real estate projects. Is this going to be the time when they try to rush for the exits?
5: If it is an investor who invested in the last year or two and the project was purchased at a price, as it was priced over the last year or two, the answer is yes. And that's why we're so busy now, because we pick these times to keep coming back in. When the market can be discounted significantly, and when we buy now, it's common knowledge um, in the market that we buy at anything from 50 to 60% discount.
1: Jerry Gutterman, thank you so much for being with us, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see whether those uh, discounts will only get uh, steeper from here, so I'm sure you have a, a busy few months ahead of you. Jerry Gutterman, Senior Principal Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Gutterman Partners, LLC in New York. It's interesting, Pim, as we talk about trade tensions and some of the turmoil in the tech sector, how does one go about identifying opportunities uh, among emerging tech companies with big data and artificial intelligence against this backdrop? And joining us from Tel Aviv, Israel, to talk about this is Barak Rabinowitz, managing partner at F2 Capital. Barak, Wonderful to have you, especially on a day like this, where the trade tensions are highlighted. How much does that backdrop color your view of how to invest in emerging tech sectors?
6: Yeah, it's great to be here. You know, we're 10-year vehicles in uh in venture capital funds generally. And I was just in the US and I heard from, you know, family offices and large institutional investors who are spread in the equity markets, debt markets and also a bit in private equity and VC. They're actually moving more money to VC now because of that, cuz nobody knows what to make out of all this volatility. VC being venture taxes. capital. Yes, yeah, venture capital. Um transforming markets, transforming the world. Uh, They still believe in tech, despite the volatility, and VC is an attractive way to do it. Um, And at the same time, all the big tech giants are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars in cash. So people can see the exit activity will continue, and it's about finding value in different locations around the world.
0: Barack, can you just give us a little background on F2 Capital? Because I believe, what, a spin-out out of Genesis Partners, you and two others deciding to go out on your own. And you managed to also take something called The Junction with you. This is an accelerator program. Explain how it works.
6: Sure, I'd be happy to, Pim. So Genesis Partners was one of the original venture capital funds formed in Israel when the industry started about 25 years ago. It, uh, we had $650 million under management uh, across four funds, and what we saw in Israel generally is a changing of the guard. Uh, at the time Genesis started, it was very much a buyer's market. Those with the cash were kings, uh, but what's happened over time as more and more strategic players move into Israel and start buying up companies is... Power has shifted to the entrepreneurs, so the founders have the power. It's now a seller's market, and VCs, to be successful, have to give more than cash uh, in order to secure the top deals. Uh, and our way of doing that at F2 Capital, F2 is power to founders. Uh, in this spirit, is through our platform called The Junction. The Junction is a, a network that we've created of multinationals, including SAP, Munich Re, Hewlett-Packard, and others, largest players in the world who are looking to Israel, Uh, for technology edge Uh, and we leverage them uh, as a way to stand out in the market and support founders and attract them to our program
1: so Barack I'm wondering if you could look into the crystal ball and tell us what the cutting edge technology is currently being developed that you think will change the world
6: Everybody is talking about artificial intelligence, and it's just different ways to apply that artificial intelligence. In Israel, uh, it all comes out of the military. Israel has always been at a numerical disadvantage to our neighbors in a hostile region. We've relied on artificial intelligence from the you know basically the, the, the uh, initial days of, of, of computers. Well, but how is it going to uh, be applied
1: so in a cutting edge way that's going to sort of transform the way we think about things?
6: It's, it's going to be applied in stages. So, um, you know, for example, enterprises are sitting on tons of data. They're drowning in data. They don't know how to make sense of all the data. So you can apply machine learning to comb through the data, enrich it with other data you can get off the web in order to create predictive models to tell you how much uh, to pay for your next house uh, or equally which drug is going to be effective to cure cancer. Uh, In other realms, in real estate, we see, for example, uh, the use of bots uh, who can uh, service hundreds of clients compared to a regular agent who can service dozens at a time. And they do that through artificial intelligence. So I think it'll be a matter of enhancing human capabilities uh, using computing power.
0: Now, according to uh, the reports, you get pitches from, let's say, 250 applicants and you select five companies and they enter a six-month boot camp program. You give them $100,000 in funding on a convertible note and then you get an option to invest more. Some of the companies are Regulus X, a firewall antivirus solution for drones and so on. But you say you want to develop sophisticated insurance technology. Tell us about why you don't want to go business to consumer you want to go business to business
6: you know i always feel that entrepreneurs they need to do things where they have an advantage and israel is so far removed from the big consumer markets for example the u.s that uh, we're really going to be at a disadvantage to startups in New York or California. Uh, Instead, if we can work behind the scenes, powering enterprises to do their jobs better, that's really a sweet spot uh, that we found. Uh, And that's what the multinationals like Google, Facebook, Apple, they all have their R&D centers outside the U.S. and Israel. But more recently, the Chinese, Alibaba and some of the other big names have come here. Uh, And that's why we chose to focus our program on these kind of enterprise deep technologies.
1: Barack, who's ahead when it comes to uh, tech advancement, U.S. or China?
6: I think the, the U.S. will always be ahead when it comes to creativity, and that means the U.S. will always be ahead. China has always been good at copying. Uh, where you see them uh, ahead is more in, uh, I would say, new forms of payment technology or in you know, specific areas. But uh, I have long-term confidence in the U.S.
0: Tell us just quickly about frontier technology when it comes to augmented reality products. How could they be used in business, and what are you doing to support that? 3D printers, for example, or cloud-based quality assurance testing?
6: Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, you mentioned 3D printers. 3D printers, you know, gets into the realm of additive manufacturing, and I'm actually born and raised in Ohio, in Youngstown, Ohio, in the Rust Belt. And we've done a partnership recently uh, alongside the big names I mentioned. We also have a partnership with the Youngstown Business Incubator, which is looking to Israeli tech and additive manufacturing as a way to stimulate jobs uh, in an economically depressed part of the nation uh, by uh, embracing additive manufacturing and restoring manufacturing power to the Rust Belt. Um, but, you know, you mentioned augmented reality as well. Same thing. We're seeing huge disruptions as people adopt artificial intelligence. You've probably heard the statistics. A lot of people are going to be unemployed. Well, if you could use augmented reality, for example, in glasses uh, and give that to people who would otherwise be laid off and send them back into the field as service personnel, uh, getting the training they need in real time and uh, the direction they need in real time uh, to fix problems, uh, it's, it's a really impactful uh, way of both generating profits uh, and a social impact.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. Barack Rabinowitz is the managing partner of F2 Capital based in Tel Aviv, speaking about artificial intelligence and venture capital incubators.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.